Hello and welcome to this special edition of the FT Advisor podcast. I'm David Thorpe, Special Projects Editor at FT Advisor. Today we are discussing how to achieve diversification and alpha from an equity portfolio. Well, it has felt as though everything has pretty much gone down in a straight line this year. There has been periods where different investment styles and markets have offered more protection than others. But in a world of radical uncertainty, what does diversification look like and how, if at all, can one achieve alpha? Joining me to discuss the topic are Charlie Parker, Managing Director at Abermarle Street Partners, and Andrew Surrey, Senior National Development Manager at Vanguard. This podcast is sponsored by Vanguard. Charlie, if we come to you first for the first question, how do you think about the question of style or factor biases or blends when constructing diversified equity portfolios? Good morning. When you're blending together a lot of different funds, factor risk and factor opportunity is really the principal thing that is left once you've blended a number of funds together and you you can prove that mathematically. So for us, getting your factor exposure right is absolutely key. We see that the biggest drivers of what factors you want to be in are the prevailing inflation and interest rate environment. You've got to be very sensitive to it. But then when you actually buy funds, you've got to, I think, try and find funds that have a strong flavour of the underlying factor that you're trying to harness and have consistency around how they access that flavour, if you like, that factor. They're not jumping around in search of returns because they can't cope with a year of being out of fashion. They're sticking to their process. So that's some of the things we think about with factor investing. Thank you. And Andrew Surrey from Vanguard. How do you think about those uh, questions? I mean, I guess everybody in the world thinks they can, you know, time perfectly the moment to jump from from growth to value or or vice versa. Lots of the people who who thought that probably haven't had a good 2022. But um, so how does one do it on a more consistent or systematic basis? Yeah, you're right, David. You know, a lot of people do think they can time factors, but it's it's arguably one of the toughest things to do in the, the world of investing. I mean, just to put some numbers around the, the differences that you can get, you know, thinking back to 2020, obviously the year that the COVID hit, you know, the growth, you know, returned 29%, value returned minus 4%. When you look at this year, year to date, so we're recording this on Halloween, so, you know, tail end of October, you know, is the flip in in their growth is minus 16%, but values plus 4% or so. So, you know, getting these right, you know, is is very very rewarding if you can do it, but very few people can do that consistently. So we would we would advocate balance. You know, so you know having exposure to you know styles, having exposure to all sorts of different investment areas to make sure that you have investment balances is key. It's actually one of Vanguard's four investment principles for investors. So that that'd be the way that we think about it. In terms of how to do it, you know, we we do it a number of ways. So in our active portfolios, you know, we have you know, for example, a global equity fund where we blend 50% with the value manager, 50% with the growth manager, and rebalance, you know, that regularly, um, you know, so that you keep your balance. And then we have other funds, use as active funds, use a single manager where the way they construct the portfolio is using, you know, balance deliberately within that to make sure they've got exposures across all of the different industries, sectors, styles, etc. Thank you. And maybe we'll we'll uh, come to you first with the with the next question as well, Andrew. And um, how relevant is geographical exposure, whether that be 
the geography in which the, the company is, is listed or the geography of where they earn their underlying cash flow. Yeah, it's really important. I mean, um, you know, going back to the building a portfolio analogy, you know, one, I'm a, I'm a sort of Cub Scout leader and one of the games we were playing the other day was filling a jar with stuff. And we was, you know, you had to start with big rocks, small stones and then, then sand. You've got to get the big rocks right. So, you know, the asset allocation is obviously a big rock when you're filling the jar, put that in first. It's likewise making sure you've got the balance right between value growth and then the balance between different geographies. Right. And then you start adding in, you know, the flavors of, of active management that you want, or, you know, or maybe don't want active management. You know, global market cap weighted funds are a great starting point for, for either the thinking process for choosing an active fund or um, as an investment philosophy on its own. The you know the way you know thinking about that you know is is also important because you know, getting that wrong you know if you have a big overweight to a particular market you know you know you look at MSCI China over the last thirty years and the return from that market is literally zero. Mm-hmm. You know, so if you'd been a big overweight from that you know look a more short term you know the last ten years or so you know which is a long period of time to be wrong or right you know the US has returned fifteen point something percent the UK has returned five point something. Um, percent annualized you know so 10 percent outperformance now that they may well swap who knows you know so just you know have be diversified be balanced if you're going down the active route let the you know the active management you know generate the alpha rather than trying to time different geographies would be our approach thank you charlie from your point of view um i know it's uh it's one of the adages in, in markets that the FTSE 100 70 or 80 percent or whatever it is uh, of the earnings come from come from overseas so owning the FTSE is not necessarily owning the UK. But how, how do you think about that that question? How relevant is it in the portfolio construction at Abermarley? Well, often the call about which geography you should be in is sort of the same question as which factor you should be more exposed to. The UK tends to behave more like value shares. The US large cap market tends to behave more like growth shares. So, so it becomes a kind of slightly circular question. I think clearly currency is massively important. And we've seen that in the last few months. We're really good. The one thing we're good at doing in a crisis in Britain is devaluing our currency. There aren't very many winners from that. But those people with multi-asset portfolios can be one of those winners. And certainly, you know, make no apology for the fact that when we started this year, we said we've got to have a lot of dollars in this portfolio and work out how to go about it. Um, just just make a point about balancing factors. So I agree uh, with Andrew that we are going into a period where you want to balance your factors very carefully. I think it's quite a hard message to deliver because for a decade, really, up until uh, the end of 2021, balancing factors didn't work at all because you had low inflation and low interest rates. And basically, you just had to have as much US growth as you could possibly have. And pretty much anything else you put in your portfolio hurt you, which was very annoying for IFAs and wealth managers, of course, because all their clients had Apple and Microsoft on their iPhones and were just asking us what on earth we were doing, buying all this other stuff when it was obvious what was working. But that was an unusual environment, a deeply unusual environment where you had year after year of the same interest rate pattern of central banks trying to figure out ways to make money cheaper and cheaper every single year. It's far more normal to have an environment where actually the prevailing macroeconomic conditions that favour different factors change frequently, very unpredictably, and it's very, very hard to call them. And there's good data to show that if you're going into a period where you think inflation will be a bit higher, maybe not not on current levels, but maybe it only falls back to three or four percent or three and a half percent. 
in that sort of environment, there's good evidence to show that actually a lot of different factors tend to work pretty well. And if you build a portfolio that just, if you like, ignores the stodgy middle of stocks that don't particularly express any factor, they're just kind of, they're not that cheap, they're not that fast growing, they're just in the middle. And you build a well-balanced portfolio of portfolios that have good factor exposure, but you balance those factors, you're getting in, in most market conditions, we think about 2% of our performance over a, a sort of benchmark in most years, but in a slightly elevated inflationary environment, you get a bit more. So we're coming into an environment where balancing your factors really, really carefully is great. It doesn't produce any more risk for the client. It doesn't produce any business risk for an IFA because they're taking a big outsized bet in one direction, but it's a hard message to deliver. Because a lot of IFAs are sitting there thinking, well, actually, I didn't bother balancing my factors. I just bought US growth and it worked really well for a decade. And we spent a lot of time trying to, trying to have that conversation. Yeah, I was just going to say, yeah, the, the, you know, the approach we're taking our global equity fund is, is exactly as you're describing, Charlie. You know, it's an out-and-out growth manager, Bailey Gifford, and, you know, an opportunistic value manager at, at Wellington, both incredibly well-resourced. And the resultant portfolio is is naturally balanced. And, and you know, by the way, just to rebut your approach, you know, your comment about it hasn't worked, you know, that, that balance approach has worked, as has, you know, as has indexing for investors. And I would, I'd say, you know, is is taking big factor bets a, a risk that an investor needs to take on their journey to a comfortable retirement or whatever their investment goal is? I'd, I'd say it probably, probably isn't one. And, you know, it's, it's all of, for us, it's all about the balance. And, and, you know, one way of working out, you know, do you have balance is to, to look at the metrics, right? You know, because you know, not everyone has got access to the tools that, that Charlie and I do. It can be tough to to work out does a fund truly have a balance. You know, there's a couple of metrics like tracking error, active share, etc. But even those can actually be misleading and are very heavily influenced by the choice of benchmark that's, that's doing the calculation. So it's it's a tough thing to work out. So really, you know, starting with actually understanding what's the manager's approach. Are they are they trying to achieve balance at all? And and if they're not, you know, understanding how you're going to use in the portfolio. But if they are aiming to achieve balance, understanding their approach and how they're doing it is a is a great starting point. Thank you. Okay. Thank you for that, Andrew. Uh, Charlie, how, how do you think about the geography question? So we we do see within equities geographic asset classes as having some diversification benefits between the two the two of them. And so when we do our strategic asset allocation, we're blending between geographies and that arrives at our strategic asset allocation. But I think the key thing to emphasize is for us, it's less about whether I like the UK economy or I like the US economy. It's more about the kind of behaviors that those markets have in particular economic environments. So, you know, we talked about a, a period of sharp outperformance for value and that, that, you know, corresponded to a brief but sharp outperformance for for the FTSE 100 and a very sharp period of underperformance for for growth, but also for the for the US. So it's all interlinked. These things they're all interlinked. The first question we ask is what sort of companies cope in this environment? And you know, a bit like Andrew's team, we're we're always operating a blend of of factors and a blend of exposures and, and a blend of geographies. But we're much more obsessed with. Well, what are the kind of behaviour of this, these assets in the prevailing economic conditions than we are exactly in, in terms of their, of, of their geography, I think. Thank you. Um, another, way, another way, David, just to add one final point, which I, I suspect Charlie's going to agree with is, 
you know, the volatility is another aspect as well. You know, if you looking at individual countries compared to the global markets, then they're either, you know, roughly 15 to twice as volatile as the global market itself. So if you're an investor that cares about risk adjusted return, you know, and you're going to overweight an individual country, you need the return to be commensurate with the extra volatility you're accepting as well. Thank you. And Andrew, maybe a, a, a obvious follow-up to, to that question is is how do you think about what characteristics are you looking for from a fund manager or a fund house or a fund team when choosing them? Yeah, so I mean we've yeah we've been investing actively since the mid 1970s. So we've got a very sort of you know you know you know well tested measured approach to choosing active managers and you know the, the approach really you know what you end up with in terms of characteristics is you know we've got a bit of access them at a low cost. If you can't access active at a low cost, it makes it very difficult mathematically to to work. And then, you know, the other one is, you know, when you look at the characteristics is, you know, low turnover, very, very long term approach. You know, it is a very, very tough, volatile world that we're operating in. And then, you know, when you're looking at, you know, the actual framework that we use, you know, the, we won't go into detail here, but, you know, as firm people, philosophy, process. And then we look at the outcomes of that framework, which is the, the portfolio and performance you know, then, you know, there are characteristics within those that, that do create better outcomes. You know, so looking at firm, you know, a firm that's stable in itself and able to attract and retain talent is going to have a higher likelihood of, of achieving results than a firm that can't re- attract and retain talent and, uh, you know, have a strong resource brand culture, etc. So there's lots of different characteristics across the board. It is very, very much an art that you need to you know, think about and invest heavily into, you know, that process. Um, you know, we've got, you know, a couple of dozen people or so that do nothing but, you know, oversee and, and search for new active talent. We have 200 or so meetings with prospective managers a year. And it's a really, really tough job. It's a people business, ultimately. So that's what you're choosing is, uh, you know, do these individuals collectively have skill um, and are they world class at what they do? Thank you. And Charlie Abramar, how, how do you how do you uh, th- think about that picking managers? How how relevant is the people business bit? How relevant is the individual relative to the firm they work for? I, I think whether the individual is fundamentally happy where they're working, whether they have the right incentives, whether they have management teams that have time horizons aligned to the quoted you know, investment time horizon of the funds is absolutely massively important and becomes more important whenever the investment style of that fund manager is out of favour. That's when you find out whether they're really in an environment where they will be supported and able to remain consistent to their views. And I think it is important to spend time with the individuals because it's it's often the case that it's surprisingly small things. I mean, we all know this from our day to day lives. Surprisingly small things can change how we feel about our, our jobs. And, and so you really have to get under the bonnet and, and kind of understand that. The other thing I'd really echo Andrew's point about um, cost, because one of the things that I think is the, you know, the biggest problem that uh, people in multi-asset portfolios have is that they go to somebody who blends together 25 good funds and talks a lot about how great the fund picking is and how much research they've done into each of those funds. But mathematically, actually, once they're all blended together, there's a very, very low level of active risk in the portfolio as a whole. Now, it doesn't matter if you're paying 1% and you own 20 funds or 1% and you own one fund, you're still paying 1%, except that the amount you're paying for every unit of active risk 
goes up the more funds you put in. And it can go up to a point where it becomes almost mathematically impossible for, for any real active value to be added. Now, the remedy to that is to only use active, in our view, selectively, where it is proven to make a big difference. And also, as, as Andrew pointed out, to make sure that when you are using an active manager, you're act, using an active manager with a, with a strong active share who has a good potential ability to, to reward you for that extra cost. Because, you know, 20 funds that outperform a little bit, but only have a tracking error of 2 or 3%, will probably just end up costing you money in the long term. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't agree with that last bit more. You know, it's, it's a very expensive way of buying the market, right? You can buy the market for 10, 20 basis points or something um, with a lot less hassle. So, yeah, you, you do need to be aware of that sort of, I once heard an awful word. I'm going to repeat it, then apologise straight after. You know, that diversification. You know, so apologies. I've done that compounding words like that. You know, but it is it is it is a real impact, you know, where you do have to be aware of it. You know, we, like I said earlier, you know, we have, 25 sub advisors that we use globally for, for different strategies. But, you know, we, you know, blend one, two or three of those together. And if you go past that, then you, you end up, you know, being better off actually just buying a tracker. Thank you. And Charlie, how one of the areas of growth, a lot of the product that's been that's been coming to market generally across all all segments are, are thematic funds or or, or macro type funds. How, how important are, are those things uh, for, for you when you're thinking about equity portfolio construction? I mean, whenever I see a fund management group launching a thematic fund, my initial reaction is a healthy dose of scepticism, because quite often it's it's marketing, you know, rather than than an actually differentiated beta. Not always, of course. I mean, my scepticism can be can be overcome in some cases, but generally. What I find is I'm just I'm just buying a subset of one beta in in the market, very cleverly packaged. So approached with great scepticism. I think your second question was, well, what about how important is macro to, to outcomes? I think macro is unbelievably important to outcomes, but it's not always about you know being able to call every movement in the business cycle. You know there there are some some other sort of large wealth managers that I won't name that that put out beautiful powerpoints where they show this perfect wave of a line and they say. This is the business cycle, a sort of symmetrical line, and we just move effortlessly between it. And, of course, the reality of the business cycle doesn't look like that at all. It's this big, jagged line that moves all over the place and changes and goes around the corner and goes all over the place. So, so it's not always about being able to call every aspect of the business cycle, but it is un- about understanding over multiple business cycles, how do you optimise a portfolio so that you'll basically come out OK at the, at the end of it and, um, and having an ability to look beyond the short term and, 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 and choose balance, even when balance is a hard thing to choose, as, as it was um, in the 10 years running up to 2021. So that's kind of our framework for how we think about it. We do tilt throughout the business cycle towards different factors, but it's always a tilt. And we only ever go a bit in one direction because we're quite willing to believe we'll find that we're wrong and have to go back again. So we don't want to go all the way. That's really how we how we think about it. Thank you. And Andrew, from from your point of view, how how important are those two um, considerations? As I say, in when I, when I came into this game 109 years ago or something, and um, every week there were generalist generic active funds launching you don't get many of those launching now you get far more thematic things yeah i think that I've, i'd admit i you know i started my career back in the tech bubble and you know everyone was busy launching tech funds just in time for the millennium for them to burst and then we've had sort of 130 30 funds and brick funds remember them what, <laughs> what happened to them 
And so, you know, I totally agree with Charlie, you know, like be sceptical first with, with thematic funds. Um, and I do think you can put some ESG funds into that. You know, I think, um, you know, I think ESG is here to stay, however. You know, we do think that um, it's, you know, it's a valid investor preference, you know, to, to have that. You know, but whatever you're investing in, you know, make sure the investment case works. You know, do you want to put your client's life savings or your life savings into this? you know, entrusted with this investment manager. So, you know, focus on the quality of the investment case first and then the theme second, rather than getting excited by the theme and realising they're the only manager that does it and that's the only way to do it. Because you can end up down some niche rabbit holes. And um, when you look at, you know, factor launches, for example, you know, which is, you know, one theme that, you know, that, you know factors a way of explaining different investment mm-hmm. performances and people launch a factor that's just done well there's um, a lot of studies done that you know about the kind of the returns leading up to the launch and the returns subsequent to the launch you know there's no such thing as a bad back test you know when it comes to thematic fund launches as well so you know healthy dose of skepticism as charlie said you know is, is very appropriate thank you and um andrew given all the answers that you've all the points that you've made from your perspective how radically different is is your approach to factors, styles, themes, the macro environment, all of that, if income is the is the priority in a in a strategy? I mean, not radically different. I mean, it's also worth bearing in mind as well that you know many investors seeking income, a total return approach is is appropriate as well as one. But if the portfolio goal is yield, is you know yield is a is a factor. You know, you are going to be ruling out sections of the. The investment market by you know by leaning into into yield but everything else stays the same in terms of you know is the manager you know you're choosing you know you know working at a quality firm that can attract and retain them you know are they surrounded are they quality and surrounded by quality you know is the firm is the people and philosophy process you know commensurate do they have an active edge when it comes out can you access them at low cost all of that remains exactly the same, you know, I'd say the balance bit can become harder when you're investing for income. So, you know, you are going to be narrowing yourself down, you know, ruling out quite a lot of geographies and industries. So just be sort of slightly wary, particularly when you go higher up the income side, either fixed income or, or dividends. You know, you can, you know, create you know, more work from yourself than, than perhaps you need. You know, but the, the good news is 2022 is that, you know, the, the natural yield you're getting off investments is is more normalised from here. Obviously, it's been painful getting to that point now. Thank you. And Charlie, at Abramar, how do you think about that? Presumably, you have some clients who, who come to you who, who want who want income. How do you avoid something which Andrew, I think, uh, hinted at, which is being overexposed, for example, to the value factor in income funds? Yeah, a couple of things that we think about. So the first is to say that I think the way financial advisors think about income is obviously different to the way fund managers do, and in one important respect, which is that for an IFA, the thing they've really got to avoid is a very big drawdown in the portfolio that the client then has to withdraw money on, pound costs ravaging to a large extent because there's been a you know a, a two standard deviation drawdown as we'd call it in the investment world and their world a you know a storm of chaos or whatever, and and something has happened that they've had to draw down on, and so we want to avoid that, and the way we do that principally is by telling them there's no free lunches. If you want to avoid really big drawdowns, you have to have probably a lower allocation to equities than you would otherwise have, and a higher allocation to medium risk assets that give you most of the upside of equities, not all of it, but are less likely to to make you suffer those significant drawdowns. So that's one one aspect. 
I think in terms of factors, I think you kind of have to be honest that because you want to really avoid significant drawdowns, it means that you can have less momentum exposure than you would run in a growth portfolio because momentum does carry um, significant drawdown risk. Momentum, by the way, we say it sometimes like it's a dirty word. It's a brilliant thing. Uh, used properly and with balance and with discipline can be a great driver of long-term returns. We shouldn't always be trying to you know, go around thinking the market's always wrong. But for, for income investors, I think you have to be more cautious about running too much momentum in the portfolio. Thank you for that. Charlie Parker, Managing Director at Abermarl Street Partners, and Andrew, sorry, Senior National Development Manager at Vanguard. And thank you all for listening to this FD Advisor podcast, which is part of our Vantage Point series. And thank you to our sponsor, Vanguard. Please do remember to tune in to future editions of the FD Advisor podcast. Thank you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.